This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome into the Hots and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem, Eric Scope, Jared Mack on the show. Welcome to your Tuesday show, getting you all the way up to speed on everything Oregon. Uh, and this game against Colorado. But first, before we can talk about what happens against Colorado on Saturday, we have to go back and give our final review of this UCLA win after speaking with Oregon head coach Mario Cristobal, offensive coordinator Joe Moorhead, defense coordinator Tim DeRuder. And I think first and foremost, guys, I think a lot of Duck fans have noticed this. Um, We've certainly noticed this. The tenor, the tone of Mario Cristobal this year feels different in interviews very different this week very upbeat mm-hmm. staff i think big wins especially on the road are always exciting no matter what happens uh in minor areas of the game after you know in that win uh this this program is pretty fired up right now yeah i i think back to after ohio state and i I don't know if this was something that was caught on camera, but Mario Cristobal said something afterwards of like, on days like today, I'd sit up here and take questions all day. You know, like he's like, he, he, he really feels like he's, he's he, when they have success, he gets really happy and excited and, and the answers feel a little bit different. And today was another one of those days. Obviously he didn't say the same thing. These were done via Zoom. So he might've said something afterwards, but we, we didn't catch it. And I, I think it was noticeable, notable. Yeah, I think it was definitely noticeable difference from, from Mario in terms of just how upbeat he was. And I think that points to how significant that win felt. And I think the pressure that they had felt looming after a couple kind of stinky games to go out. And I know this one has some some negatives that we'll get to, and but a lot of positives. And I think I think the staff is clearly feeling pretty good about it. And there's some not-so-savory things we'll touch on. But I think collectively, most of what he said was really positive today. Yeah, it was different. It was uh, – this is like a couple weeks – couple weeks after where Mario's just kind of going through the motions, it seems like answering questions and then just that's it. Uh, he had a little bit of emotion this, this week and today on uh, Monday. And, you know, we really appreciated that. He got, I think it was 18 minutes total, which is far more, almost double than what Mario usually talks for. So, but yeah, it was, it was all around. It was, it was good. It was uh, exciting to hear from the, both the coaches and coordinators about what their thoughts were on the game as well. And Jared, Cristobal, first and foremost, gave us an injury update. Why don't you get us up to speed? Because there's quite a quite a few guys that left that mm-hmm. game uh, with injuries and even one that couldn't go at the start of the game. Yeah, so as, as if you're listening to this, uh, you're probably aware, but Alex Forsyth did not play again against UCLA. That's his third straight missed game going back to Stanford. Uh, Cristobal again told us earlier in the week that he was good to go on last Wednesday. Uh, same thing he told us earlier. He said the same thing today. Looked good yesterday. Now that uh, he had a, Mario said that he had a little bit of a setback again pregame. Uh, so he said that he's still good to go and is going to be day-to-day for now. Uh, and Also on the offensive line, Jackson Powers Johnson is probably going to be out a couple of weeks, according to Cristobal, with an ankle sprain. He said that x-rays were negative, which is a good thing to hear. Uh, on camera, 
didn't look like a good injury at all. Uh, to me, it looked like a high ankle sprain. So uh, at least it's an x-ray negative ankle sprain. Uh, Steven Jones was good to go, according to Cristobal. Actually, I'll just rattle off all the guys Mario Cristobal said were good to go. Yeah, do it. Uh, Steven Jones, Mace Funa, Troy Franklin, and Dante Manning, all good to go, apparently. And uh, Jordan Happel was the last who might miss a week, according to Cristobal. He said that's the most he think he will miss. Uh, Troy Franklin, Dante Manning, and Mace Funa were all banged up in the second half. Franklin seemed to be favoring his right arm or wrist area. Uh, Dante Manning, I don't remember what his injury was. And then Mace went down with a right leg injury in the second half and had to be helped off the field. So th that's on, on an injury front, that's still pretty good. Uh, Oregon seems to still be relatively healthy. Uh, Jack Spires Johnson going out hurts. He was their starting left guard against UCLA. Uh, and with Alex Forsythe out, his backup, uh, Jack Spires Johnson is basically the backup center. And I know that Ryan Walk is taking over the duties, but the offensive line depth is going to be something to keep an eye on moving forward. That's for sure. Yeah, Dante Manning was a hip, there. wasn't it? Sorry, I cut you off, Matt. I was going to say Dante Manning was a hip. That's all I had to say. A hip. Okay. I was just saying that you know the offensive line is taking a big hit, and you mentioned it, Eric. Um, immediately after post game, Mario was asked about it again today. Just the performance that that offensive line gave, with so many guys starting out of position at the beginning of the year uh it's certainly like jared said certainly one to monitor the next couple of weeks because they're pretty banged up right now and they've probably been the most consistent position group offensively um over the course of the entire year um i think maybe maybe them are running back yeah, um let's do troy franklin's injury um it's probably positive news there um, didn't look like he was going to be all the way. Um, Jordan Happel might miss a week, which could create some interesting dynamics. Who is the backup now to Jamal Hill if he needs to come off the, the field for conditioning or injury re reasons? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I think that's a tough one there. Not that not that you can't replace it because there's guys, but it's not going to be an experienced player. Um, Damon David's name comes to mind. He's a true freshman who hasn't played a lot in part because he was injured himself earlier this year. Um, right. I, I wonder about maybe a Jeffrey Bossa fills in at that spot and they can rotate some inside. I mean, I just kind of wonder, I mean, like obviously he's, he's repping at will linebacker, but he had an, originally and initially been, you know, behind Bennett Williams and Jamal Hill as the, the next nickel. And you just kind of think about that position group and how many guys have gone down. So um, those are a couple of names to watch there. As long as Jamal stays healthy, I think you feel okay at that spot. There's been a slight drop off from him, or from Williams to him, I should say. Um, but collectively, that's a that's a pretty good duo Oregon had there at nickel, and I don't think you've seen a drop off like you might have seen at other spots. Like for example, that Will spot where it's really taken them some time to get better. I think they have been playing better. I think Boss has been great, or I shouldn't say great, but he's definitely been improving and showing some things. That nickel spot, I think you feel a little better about in terms of replacing guys. And just a thought on the offensive line, I think the way they ended that game, I don't know if there's a single guy in that start on that offensive line that was playing the same position that they started this season at. Um, and that just speaks to the challenges that they have to go through here, where all these guys train at different spots. Mario Cristobal made a point of saying that, you know, we ask about that all the time. Why are you training guys at those spots? He said, this is the payoff. This is why you get into a spot like this and you're able to do it. Um, 
we will see what this looks like. I, it's going to be one of the storylines going into Saturday's game with Colorado is, is who starts and, and at what positions, because honestly, there's probably like half a dozen combinations based upon different guys availability of how this could play out. And collectively you feel good because most of these guys are good players. We feel pretty good about, but you just, I mean, you might see Dawson Yarmil playing tackle or guard. TJ Bass just started at tackle and then finished the game at guard. Uh, Steven Jones and Big Sala have also got experience doing that. And Ryan Walk can play center or guard. And Dustin John Millick, by the way, can also play center. So, I mean, there's all of these different combinations, and that's kind of the, the puzzle that they have to put together this week. The passing attack, um, by far, I think it's the best we've seen from Morgan. Um, Eric, you got a good answer from both Moorhead and Crystal Ball about that second interception that was thrown by Anthony Brown. Um, I think I'll speak for all three of us. I think we all fall in line with this. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, we were more confused of why they even attempted a pass mm-hmm. in that situation, let alone the decision by Anthony Brown. Like that was a bad throw by Brown. Yeah. But right. the bigger issue was why throw? And we got some clarity on that. Yeah. Total lockstep there. Bad decision to throw it in terms of the play call and then, the question of why is Brown throwing it there into triple coverage in the end zone where it had a high probability of being picked. And Mario Cristobal, I was, I don't want to say surprised, but I didn't, I, you know, I asked the question. I wasn't sure exactly how it would go over, but he was pretty upfront about it and said, quote, we analyzed it as a staff. That was when we wanted to score. We felt like we were going to have to score, but we'd like to have that play call back. Okay. That's pretty significant, and, and I think pretty upfront from him. I, I liked hearing him be honest about that, and, and I mean, I don't think there's much question about it. And in the post game, it seemed like he was sort of suggesting something else. And obviously, after reviewing it, they came to this conclusion. He also said the throw wasn't what we wanted either—not a good play and not the call we wanted. So um, significant, and I will be curious to see going forward if and how things change. I also think we got sort of a glimpse into some of the relationship between Moorhead and Cristobal in terms of calling the offense because I asked. Mario, sorry, I asked uh, Moorhead about um, kind of that dynamic and, and, and kind of what went behind that decision. And he said that Cristobal had called him over the phone up in the booth and told him they wanted to stay aggressive and, quote, call the game the way we had to get to that point. Um, he also pointed, like Mario did, to the fact that they wanted to get a touchdown there. Uh, if you get a, a field goal, you give like, UCLA a chance to drive the length of field and possibly win the game in regulation or at least go ahead uh, with a little bit of time left or not much time probably at all, depending on how it plays out. So, um, they wanted to be aggressive. They wanted to score the touchdown. I commend that. Mm-hmm. Um, but as both Cristobal and Moorhead said, um, and Moorhead did take responsibility for the decision to to make that call and said it was maybe not the right one and one that, that he needs to find a better one going forward. But, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, it, it's, it's one where clearly you have to be more, I guess, mindful of what the worst outcome is on that play. And the play call that they, that they decided to make was one that had the process, you know, the possibility of what ends up happening, happening. And that's one you don't want in that circumstances. Cause that is the only thing you can't have happen there. Really. There's all, and there's obviously the, the next step of that. And I don't think the coach has ever said it besides Mario's, you know, obviously didn't like the throw either, but regardless, Anthony Brown needs to be able to understand, Hey, this play is totally messed up, tuck it or just kill the ball and, and move on. Um, more, more had, more I did say we probably should have thrown the ball into the fifth row. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. Yeah. So there's that, but I think really good positive progress 
from Oregon's passing game. And Crystal Ball and Moorhead both said now it's you – know, they've taken steps. They can see steps in development, that, that aspect of the offense. And now it's can you maintain that success and can you continue to build on it? And that's ultimately going to be probably the – the biggest question mark on Oregon's team the rest of the year is can they build off of what happened at UCLA or will they go two steps back, two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward again? Yeah, it's tough to really tell what's going to happen next week at Colorado. You know, we've touched on this before, but Obviously, Anthony Brown in the passing attack was was really good against UCLA and, and honestly was rather surprising. We haven't seen anything like that all year long. Um, you could say like the first half against Stony Brook, but still for a full game, Anthony Brown is well above 70%. That's like that threshold that Joe Moorhead wants to be at for his quarterback play. And, you know, he showed out. He That, that was a defense that was elite at stopping the run and not very good at stopping the pass. And that's exactly what Oregon did. That was their game plan. They got down in the red zone, and Coach Moorhead touched on this a little bit in his press conference about wanting to be efficient in the red zone, and that's exactly what they were. And Travis Dye at one point had four touchdowns on eight carries, which is pretty good. Last time I checked, four straight carries for a touchdown, all in the red zone. So that is as efficient as it gets. Um, regarding the decision to throw, uh, after hearing Moorhead and Cristobal talk about it, I was actually more in favor of it. Um, you know, I, I feel like there has been a, a trend this season for Oregon's offense to not be aggressive. Mm -hmm. And maybe that is because of their lack of personnel. But knowing that Moorhead and Cristobal were on the same page of wanting to stay aggressive, take the shot in the end zone, uh, I, I thought it was I thought it's the right play call because uh, Moorhead talked about it where if they were to kick a field goal at that point, they'd only be up by six. And UCLA could still run down the field and score a touchdown and ultimately get ahead and probably win the game. But if they score a touchdown there, game's essentially over. And I thought the play call was fine. I thought Devin Williams actually was open. I think if Anthony Brown had a little more zip on his ball and let him towards the back corner, it could have been a touchdown. It didn't happen. But it was a second down play. If that ball is thrown out of bounds into the third row, fifth row, like Moore had said, you know, then they could run the ball and hopefully, you know, get enough yards to either consider going for it on fourth and short or kick a field goal, which Camden Lewis has been a huge positive this year. Although he, you know, he did miss his extra point against UCLA, right. but he's shown this year that they, they trust him and they trust him from, from deep with a 49 yard field goal this year. So I, I think I was reassured and, and, eager to see what they do against Colorado now that they want to have this aggressive mentality on offense. It's a really good point by Jared of, I've said the same thing, all of this next comment, like all year, I and I think all three of us and mm -hmm. a lot of fans have said, be aggressive, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. take shots. And they did. It just didn't, it just didn't work out in that one instance, but that's a great point that, you go back and look at it like they they tried to deliver the knockout blow instead of just kind of whimpering into a win and it just didn't execute correctly and if you go back and watch the film it feels like a couple of their receivers weren't even running routes they were blocking maybe and it, and it just looked like a total miscommunication on that play so in theory on paper i kind of like I, i'm siding with jared now i, I kind of like it because they were doing what we've all been asking for 
it, it also reminds me a little bit, guys, of the play against Stanford that didn't work, where it's the same thing, where it's execution, not play design or not decision making. Because I, I thought the, you know, sorry, I almost said Byron Cardwell. He was like run, running it right before that against Stanford. But they try to throw a screen to Travis Dye. He doesn't get, you know, it's, it's an incomplete pass that ends up killing clock. If that's a completion, we've talked about this, a lot of success there. Same thing here. And Morehead mm-hmm. even said it, it's a results-based, results-oriented game. And we didn't execute. And we were having a vastly different conversation if this works. It kind, you know what it kind of reminds me of a little bit is, this is going NFL slightly, but the Los Angeles Chargers with Brandon Staley, where he goes for it on fourth down all game, every game. And when it works and they're beating teams, it's, oh, my gosh, this guy is brilliant. He's so smart. What Look a genius, yeah. And then when he goes for it fourth and two on his own 19 and they don't get it and they end up getting blown out by the Ravens because I think they're 0 for 3 or 1 for 4 on fourth or something. Um, everyone's like, what an idiot. What the heck is this guy thinking? It's it's a similar thing here. I know it's somewhat different a little bit, but it's a thing of trying to stay aggressive because everybody likes it when you're aggressive. And and the big criticism under Cristobal for years has been how passive he's been sometimes in these spots and how he hasn't gone for the knockout blow. I appreciated him going for it. And and I appreciate him saying afterwards that they that they would have liked you know that they liked the decision to go for it. They wanted to stay aggressive, just that the decision and maybe the, where the ball was thrown and, and the call itself was maybe the wrong one. So um, just kind of following up and, and concluding some passing game stuff before we move on, guys. Um, thought it was notable. Joe Moore had said that you know you need three things on a passing play to work. You need offensive line play to protect. You need the receivers to get open and need the quarterback to deliver a ball. And he said over the course of that game and obviously some shortcomings we could point to but collectively they executed pretty darn well and I will be very very curious to see this week against Colorado what the progression is what's the Mm -hmm. next step can Anthony Brown do that again because if he can do that again against a Colorado defense which mind you against the pass at least is probably about as good if not a little better than UCLA at least statistically that's going to feel pretty good. And that's going to give you some momentum going into a Washington game where they are one of the best pass defenses in the conference and you'll need to be clicking. Like I, the point I'm trying to make here is you're getting to the part of the season where you might be facing some defenses that are, are tougher against the pass. And the fact that we're kind of seeing it come together here a little bit. And again, there are obviously some, some bright moments and some really, some really dark ones, if you want to use that analogy. Um, but I think the fact that we saw so much of that bright stuff last week, and even at times against Cal, wasn't perfect. There were some really rough times in the third quarter on that one. But collectively, you have to feel a little bit, a little bit better about where you're at from a passing game perspective. And if they can continue to make that progress the next two weeks, um, this offense could start maybe taking a real big stride in, in the right direction and become one that that really is multidimensional and can really challenge teams. Real quickly, on the defensive side of the football, obviously KT was tremendous. Best player on the football field. Um but he wasn't the only one that played really, really well. Um, I thought Brandon Dorless and Popo Amave were absolutely terrific in run stuffing that UCLA team. One in which, you know, we've talked a lot about and the coaches hammered at home that they were UCLA was like one of, if not the best rushing team in, in the conference going into that game. And Oregon held them to 2.4 yards per carry. And there wasn't a run more than 14 yards in that game. And, you, you, yeah, sure, Dorian Thompson-Robinson had some good runs for first downs and some scrambles, and they ran for three touchdowns. But for the most part, they held this rushing attack completely in check. Really impressed with that. And it, I, I do think it was 
in part because the personnel played a lot better. And yeah. also yeah. in part because they're actually kind of healthy here. And you're starting to see some of the guys who've been out for a long time play. And you start saying, hey, I guess when Oregon is fully healthy or close to it at deep on defense, they're pretty good. There's been a lot of criticism of Tim DeRuiter, and at times I think it's been fair. But I also think you have to recognize this is a unit that probably has had six to seven of its linebackers or edge players. I don't know how you want to quantify or qualify those edge guys because I still think they're linebackers. It seems like maybe they're defensive linemen in some instances, but whatever. But they have had almost everyone. Like they've been out six to seven to eight of those guys, not all maybe in the one game, but over the course of the season, they're getting closer to full health. And I think that really came through. And the talent in that front seven – which really was supposed to be a strong suit for this defense, I think is really shining through. And um, I think the play of two guys that we haven't talked a lot about recently in my mind that really st- stepped up in that one. One was Jeffrey Bossa, which I know Matt and I did bring him up on the postgame pod. Another one who I think kind of having now rewatched more of it, who actually played more than I thought and was pretty effective at times is Adrian Jackson. Um, yes. You know, sliding up there. And, and that's a guy who um, – we have for years been waiting to see kind of the talent come to fruition because athletically and physically he is extremely gifted, really, really fast, really explosive, strong upper body. Um, I even think about a couple of times where he missed plays against Dorian Thompson Robinson, trying to kind of stop him from running up field where the fact that he was even in position there spoke to the athletic gifts. I think the touchdown, um, I can't remember if that was a fourth quarter touchdown or not, but where basically it's, it's one-on-one, running east to west between Jackson and Dorian Thompson Robinson and Jackson ends up not making the tackle, but just the fact that he was in that position mm-hmm. speaks to the athletic tools he has. So um, those two guys stepped up and then everybody, all the regulars played really, really well. Um, you have to be, I think really ecstatic by this performance. And again, aside from Oregon state in the regular season finale, there's not another rushing offense that is anywhere near as potent as the one Oregon just faced. And I think a Colorado team, we don't, I don't know if we're going to talk too much buffs today because that's usually what we talk as the week goes on. Colorado team that strictly really can't throw the football. I mean, they don't have yeah. almost any success throwing the ball. You look at their receiving stats, it's worse than Oregon's. <laughs> you know, I mean, you look at Oregon's, <laughs> you, look at, you look up at Oregon's stats, and like, wow, they have one receiver over 200 yards right now, and it's Johnny Johnson. Colorado hasn't had any. Um, that's nice. a team that needs to run the football. And I start to think maybe this is the week where they really put together, like, not a shutout, but close to a shutout performance because – if Colorado can't throw the ball, which I don't think they can, and then they can't run the ball because Oregon's defense plays like it just did, this is where you could see a scenario where it's like it does actually kind of get ugly. So um, big props, I think, to that unit. And uh, Tim Drew was really complimentary as well about how everybody fared there. Real quick. So I talked about this in the instant takeaways where two weeks ago when I talked to Brandon Dorless, he said that this defense is going to look different in the second half against Cal when KT came back. Now with the full game, it looks really different. And just real quick on that rushing defense, in UCLA's first nine carries of the of the game, they had 59 total yards. So if you take out the sacks from UCLA's rushing attack, which you should always do, I don't know why we we even keep track of it like that. It's the dumbest stat thing in college football. Stupid. It drives me nuts. So. When you take those out, UCLA ran for 129 total yards, which is their season low. Great performance by the, or by the Oregon defense. So 59 of those 129 yards came in the first nine carries. The rest of the game, UCLA ran the ball 36 times for 70 yards. That's great. Wow. Pretty good. Pretty good. Very good. 
UCLA had th- uh, four total rushes of over 10 yards, so 10-plus yards. Three of them came on the first drive of the game. That's it. That's all you got to say. I, I think the UCLA performance defensively, yes, in that first quarter it was not good. Um, but Ruder kind of alluded to it. Crystal Ball kind of alluded to it. Once they got an opportunity to kind of get their feet wet, make some quick adjustments, because mind you, like Deruder was going into good detail at the very end of his press conference of all the just the funky things that UCLA was doing, the window dressing, if you will, to really get you off balance and confused about what's happening. Once they kind of got settled in there, that defense played really well. I mean, Oregon went on a 34 to three run at one point in that football game. And you look at it and that's kind of what this defense is going to be like moving forward the rest of the year. Now, UCLA isn't the best passing team in the country. They'll play some teams uh, that are probably better at that aspect, but Colorado, a rushing team, Washington, a rushing team, Utah, they're probably a little balanced more Mm -hmm. than normal this season than traditional aspects. Um, Washington State's going to be a passing attack. And then Oregon State, their bread and butter is their running game. Different schemes, no doubt about it. They are all different offenses. But we got a good look at what this defense could be like the last half of this season. It was pretty darn good. Mm -hmm. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. All right. Um, Overall, any other sweeping takeaways? You got a couple more minutes here that we need – Anything else we need to address, or are we good from our 45-minute conversations with head coach and coordinators? I thought there was a couple of comments Mario made about the interaction with fans at the end of the game. Yes. Jared, I think wrote a story on that, so you have the quotes. Um, But basically, I think it helped explain sort of that interaction and and why he thought it was important to to convey to them not to boo. Go ahead and and read what what was said, Jared. Yeah, absolutely. Mario said that he he had some family time with some of the fans of the Rose Bowl. Uh, he said that I appreciate that time, the family time, because to me, if you're part of our fan base, if you're part of a member of an organization, you're part of the family. Uh, he mentioned that he should have used better words when referring to uh, dropping the S bomb when <laughs> asking the, the fans to speak the S bomb. <laughs> to uh, refer to them to not boo anymore at Autzen Stadium. Uh, so he said that, quote, so we chopped it up a little bit to get ready to get back in knots and, and do what we have to do. Because, look, there's going to be times where there are frustrating moments. Uh, we all have. I get it. I totally get it. But I full, also fully understand, and I hope we all understand and can agree upon that when Autzen is on fire, there is no comparison. So he owned up to it again. Uh, I know he talked about it after his postgame press conference as well at UCLA. But, yeah, he was – he was not thrilled by the booing at, at Autzen against Cal, clearly. And uh, he let it be known to all the fans. But it was it was an, an interesting comment, to say the least, that you know he treats everybody like family. And I think that's a great thing to hear because that's great to hear from the families of the players, the fans, and how much he cares and how much he impacts his program. going to do it for us here on the Austin Audible's podcast. Thank you for listening to the show. Uh, on Wednesday, we will be making our game predictions for the week. 
Um, and then Thursday, we will have a insider of the Colorado Buffalo program on to give us our preview. And then Friday will be the ultimate show where we get you all up to date on everything you need to know going into this game on Saturday. Until then, you've been listening to the Austin Ottawa's podcast. Talk to you there, folks. Peace. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.